Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiani Internet Radio. Today is Friday, October 16th, 2015. Melissa and I are on the road, as I said I would be last week, presenting at Fiends. Our presentation of Paul's Epistles is going to be put on hold until we get home, possibly two weeks from now, and maybe three. I don't know. These long trips always seem to take a little longer than we initially planned, but that's okay, too, because fellowship is much more important. We will be... um, Well, first, let me say this, because this probably, if I had to guess, it might affect 5% of, of the people that visit my website. That, that's a guess from a sample that, that I've taken. For those people having a problem with the audio players at Christogenia, I made a small programming change so that if you click onto the page for a podcast, and that's done by clicking the title rather than staying on the front page or on any of the pages that present a list of podcasts. If you click onto the page for a podcast by clicking the title, the audio will preload for you. And once the audio preloads, it will play uninterrupted. You know or you will know that the podcast is preloaded because the program length will appear in the player before you hit the play button. The topic of tonight's discussion is Ruth was an Israelite. Ruth was not a Moabite by race. I have decided that whenever I am on a road, or while I'm on the road, I am at least infrequently going to take some of the more important papers of Bertrand Compare or Wesley Swift, or perhaps even others of the Christian identity teachers of the past, and make critical presentations of them while also elaborating on them and hoping to edify them further. This being a critical presentation, we will attempt to correct the original author where we feel that he may have done better while commending him where he did do well. Here we shall present Bertrand Compare's sermon, Ruth was an Israelite, with precisely that goal in mind. The version of the sermon, this version of the sermon, which I will present tonight, is available at the Compare Project at Christianity.org. It is from the book Your Heritage, which was digitized with critical notes by Clifton A. Emmeheiser. And I will offer a digression later this evening in relation to the Your Heritage book. Not to be confused with Compare's small identity tract 
the same title. The book of Compray sermons known as Your Heritage was several hundred pages and was um, was produced by Gene Snyder by actually transcribing Compray's tapes. Gene Snyder was a um, longtime friend of Bertrand Compray and his wife. To begin with um, presenting Bertrand Compare's, Ruth was an Israelite. It is unfortunate that many preachers, in their ignorance, teach so many false doctrines. One such false doctrine is the statement that Yahshua was not of pure Israelite blood. They say one of his ancestors was Ruth, a Moabitess. From the use of this term, they believe that she was racially, not just geographically, a Moabite. In this, they are greatly mistaken. The territory of the Moabites was originally east and northeast of the Dead Sea. It extended from the Arnon River and on the south to the Jabbok River. I'm sorry, the Arnon River on the south and to the Jabbok River on the north. Then their territory went from the Dead Sea and the Jordan River on the west across the plains and foothills into the mountains to the east. From the name of the people who lived there, it was called Moab. It kept that name for many centuries after all of the Moabites were gone from it. When the Israelites entered the Promised Land, after their 40 years wandering during the Exodus, the land of Moab was the first land they conquered. Yahweh had commanded Israel to totally exterminate the occupants of the lands they were to settle. In Moab, they did so. At this time, about 1450 B.C., Sihon, king of the Amorites, had conquered and occupied the kingdom of Moab and was its ruler when the Israelites came in. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 26 and 29, we read, For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand, even unto Arnon, which was a river. Woe unto thee, Moab, thou art undone. O people of Kamash, he has given his sons that escaped and his daughters into captivity unto Sehan, king of the Amorites. The Israelites conquered the land of Moab, killing all the people found there. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 32 through 34, Then Sahan came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. And Yahweh, our God, delivered him before us. We smote him and his sons and all his people. And we took all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men and the women and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. From here, the Israelites advanced northward into the land of Ammon, 
Numbers chapter 21, verses 33 through 35, describes it. And they turned and went up by way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his peoples, at the battle at Edre. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand, and all his people and his land. And thou shalt do to him as thou did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So they smote him and his sons and all his people until there was none left alive, and they possessed his land. Here we are going to summarize what Compare is telling us by presenting some of the notes which Clifton Emmerheiser had included with his publication of Compare Sermons from Your Heritage. These are the versions which appear at Christogenia and at the Israel Elect websites. I want to make a short digression to tell part of this story. Jean Snyder was a, um, I consider her a dear friend, and um, we were fairly close. She was fairly fond of me and confided in me a lot. She died. Um, she was an elderly woman, of course. She had known Bertrand Compare for 30 or 40 years. And, and Wesley Swift also, and, and Lorraine Swift. And through her, I... Um, was fortunate enough to have the correspondence of Lorraine Swift as well for quite a long time. Gene Snyder had um, taken all of the copyright tapes and had transcribed them and put them to her computer. And for some reason, Gene... There was something, I don't know what it was, I will never know what it was, but Jean had some sort of beef with, and it was minor, it must have been, because she loved his work, but she had some sort of beef with Clifton I don't know what it is, Clifton might know, he might be able to tell us perhaps one day, but Clifton had asked Jean for her um, transcriptions of these Compare sermons, and Jean... <laughs> just refused to turn them over. So Clifton redid them all and, and did them himself and, and put some critical notes in them. And, and um, I can't speak for all of the notes, but Clifton's notes were very good. And they were placed on, um, some of them were placed on Israel Elect, I know that, and they, were, they have all been placed onto the Compare Project at Christogenia. So Jean's, um, what worked, her typing had to be redone with Clifton, but the transcriptions, Clifton made some corrections by listening to the tapes, to quite a few of them, especially to the Revelation series and things like that. But Jean um, passed on and, and anything else that she had taken the time to transcribe, so far as I know, is lost. She actually passed on a year before 
I was released from prison. I believe that the, if, if my memory serves me properly. So that's the history of the um, Your Heritage book, which has was what well, was available through Clifton M. Heister's Watchman's Teaching Ministries. I don't know if Clifton still has that available. It's also available at Kingdom Identity Ministries for quite some time. I don't know if it's still available there. It was um, perhaps 300 type pages of Comparate Sermons. I do not know if there are any um, existing transcriptions of Comparate Sermons outside of what we have at Christagenia or at Israel Alev. And, and if there are, I would certainly appreciate them to post them as well. While um, what we should be able to correct and augment the work of our teachers, we shouldn't have our teachers on pedestals, of course, that then they become God, right? That then, while we should be able to correct and augment them, we still should appreciate what they have done for us. So that's my digression. That that's that digression. I'm sorry. Returning to uh, Clinton's notes on the subject of Ruth, for this section of Comparey's essay, he had said the following, which was an extract of his June 2002 Watchman's Teaching Letter number 50, where he was talking about Daniel and the Revelation, and he said, before getting started on our walk through Daniel and the Revelation, we should consider how false opinions get started. It's like the mistaken conclusion by the majority that Ruth was a racial Moabite. Today, that untrue concept is being used by the enemy through nominal churchianity to promote multiculturalism. If one will consult Bertrand Comparé's work, Ruth was an Israelite, one will see that the Israelites had driven the Moabites out of the land of Moab hundreds of years previous to Ruth's time. Therefore, Ruth was only a Moabite geographically, not genetically. To give you, and we're continuing with Clifton, to give you an example of what all these so-called Bible experts have little knowledge of, I will cite a case where nearly every bandstand would-be adept on Scripture fumbles the ball. That's the story of Ruth. They will erroneously claim that Ruth was a Gentile Moabite who became an ancestor of Yahshua Christ. Anyone who makes this declaration has little to no conception of what the Bible is saying. That is not all what the Bible teaches. Under the Joshua period, the Israelites killed that is not at all what the Bible teaches. I'm sorry. I should probably have my glasses on. Under the Joshua period, the Israelites killed and displaced the occupants of the entire land of Moab and then reoccupied the land of Moab for themselves for 300 years. Please check the following scriptures. And we're not going to recite the list of scriptures. It's the same list of scriptures which Comparay employs in this paper. Ruth was an Israelite. However, Clifton highlights 
three of those scriptures, which we will talk about shortly. He continues by saying, if at first you don't understand the connection, reread these scriptures until you do understand. Ruth was merely an Israelite who dwelt in the land of Moab. Ruth was a Moabite only by geographic area rather than by genetics. Christ was of a pure bloodline all the way back to Adam. Rahab was also an Israelite. And that's the end of Clifton's remarks for now. And the story of Rahab is another, mon- is another matter entirely. All of the passages which Clifton had cited in his notes are already cited by Compare in his paper, which is obvious, but perhaps Clifton only wanted to compile them into one place in his notes, which is fine, and doing so, Clifton stressed the importance of a few passages in bold type. They are Numbers chapter 21, verse 29, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3, and Judges chapter 11, verse 26. Numbers 21, 29 explained that the Amorites had already conquered and taken the land of Moab, which was later in turn conquered by the Israelites. Clifton's notes conclude the following in relation to this. To understand the chronological order of events, one must fathom that, firstly, Sihan, the king of the Amorites, had conquered and occupied the kingdom of Moab. Secondly, that after Sihan had absorbed the Moabites, Israel destroyed both the Amorites as well as the Moabites whom Sahan had conquered and brought under his rule. How absurd, then, is the false claim made by incompetent wannabe Bible teachers that Ruth was a racial Moabite? Now, bear in mind that Clifton's notes were at the end of Compare's paper, as he had originally published them. That was his conclusion. I have chosen to reorder his notes for this presentation, and there is one paragraph which we have not yet presented, which we shall discuss later. Deuteronomy 23.3 contains the law which excludes Moabites from the assembly of Yahweh, meaning racial Moabites or tribal Moabites might be more appropriate. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. Judges 11.26 is a part of the protest of Jetzah to the Ammonites, which, speaking in relation to the ancient land of Moab, taken long before by the Israelites, says, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and in Aror and her towns, and in all the cities that be along the coasts of Arnon, three hundred years, why therefore did you not recover them within that time? The Ammonites challenging the Israelites. 
or land in the time of Gentile. We will discuss the importance of understanding the historical implications of Judges 11 and the law of Deuteronomy 23.3 in relation to the account of Ruth after we finish with Kampare's portion of this presentation. So to continue with Kampare, where he is speaking of the lands of Moab conquered by Israel, this entire area of the Jordan River was settled by the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. After all the original inhabitants, Moabites and Ammonites, had been killed or driven out. In Deuteronomy 32, I'm sorry, in Deuteronomy 3, verses 12 through 16, Moses tells us, and this land which we possessed at the time, from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead and the cities thereof, gave I unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites, and the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, and unto the Reubenites and unto the Gadites, I gave from Gilead even unto the river Arnon, half the valley, and the border even unto the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon. All of this was accomplished about 1450 B.C. From this time on, this was purely Israelite territory. This was even more so than the land west of the Jordan River, because in the old lands of Moab and Ammon, none were left alive. Today, Anglo-Saxon Americans who live in California are called Californians. Bearing this name and living in the former Mexican territory doesn't make them Mexicans. Likewise, pure Israelites living in the old land of Moab were often called Moabites, just as those who lived in Galilee were called Galileans. And of course, Compare is correct. Later in Scripture, when the Israelites were admonished by Yahweh for leaving Canaanites in certain places, it was not said of this land east of the Jordan from where they had indeed all been driven out. As for Compare's chronology, in a digression which we had made in the first segment of our ongoing presentation, of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We have explained how the dating of the reign of Solomon as king over over Judah is arrived at from certain documents, such as the quotations of Menander of Ephesus, which are found in the writings of Josephus. From this and other sources, the reign of Solomon can be confidently estimated to have begun about 971 BC, which would place the beginning of the reign of Saul at about 1051 BC, if we accept the round numbers of 40 years for the rule of David and 40 for the rule of Saul. Therefore, if the judges' period was 400 years, 
as it seems to have been, and as it is attested to have been in Acts chapter 13, that it began right around 1450 B.C., and that would include the period of Joshua. So Compare's chronology is certainly close. Now, Compare had said here that Ruth was called a Moabite, as men of Galilee in a time of Christ were called Galileans. That is true. But his argument may have been a little stronger if he had presented evidence contemporary to the time in question to show that Israelite people were indeed being identified by geography in Scripture at that time. A precursory examination shows that they were. In 2 Samuel, in chapter 23, there is a list of the mightiest warriors of King David. In the list are found the following. Ikesh, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the Anatophite, Mebune, the Hushathite, Maharai, the Medosathite, Beniah, the Pyrrhonite, Hide of the Brooks of Gash, Abialban, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Baramnite, Elialba, the Shalabanite, Shema, the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Hararite, Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezre, the Carmelite, Pare, the Arbite, Zelek, the Ammonite, and Naharai, the Berosite. All of these men are named by geography. All of those are place names. And possibly some of the others in the list were also identified in that manner, where the references are more obscure, since it is not known whether the name they are identified with is a place name or a clan name. So, or even a description of some other sort, and we are confident that Uriah the Hittite is simply a name given to Uriah because Hittite means fearsome, being a warrior. He would be called Uriah the Fearsome. So all of these names I have just mentioned are names which identify Israelites at the time of David by geography, not by their tribe. We don't know which tribe of Israel most of these men are from, but we know that they must have been Israelites. In the 17th and 18th centuries of our era, the English had taken their territory in America drove out the natives and established colonies. And, as it was in ancient Israel, it was considered unlawful for pastors to marry people off to savages. In at least many places. From that time forward, it could never be taken for granted that a reference to a Pennsylvanian or to a New Yorker or to a Virginian 
could possibly refer to a native savage, even in places where the native savage place names were retained by the English, such as Connecticut or Massachusetts or Massapequa or Hohokus, New Jersey. The references could only refer to Englishmen and the men of kindred European peoples who had come along with the English, such as the Dutch or the Scots. Likewise, in this list of David's mightiest warriors, and within the context of the conquests of the children of Israel, it is just as certain that none of these men were Canaanites or Moabites or Ammonites or Hittites, but that they were all Israelites inhabiting lands which at one time belonged to those other tribes. <laughs> Returning to Bertrand Compare, 300 years later, about 1143 BC, we find evidence that the Israelite occupation of the lands of Moab and Ammon was still unbroken. In Judges chapter 11, verses 12 through 26, we read, And Jephthah sent messengers under the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered under the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from Arnon even unto Jabbok, and now unto Jordan. Now therefore restore again those lands peaceably. And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon, and said unto him, Thus, said, thus saith Jephthah, when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness under the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers out under the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land. But the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. And in like manner they sent under the king of Moab, but he would not consent. Then they went along through the wilderness and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers unto Sahan, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land into my place. But Sahan trusted not Israel to pass to his coast. But Sahan gathered all his people together and pitched in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Yahweh, God of Israel, delivered Sahan and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country, and they possessed all the coasts of the Amorites from Arnon even unto Jabbok, and from the wilderness even unto Jordan, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns, and in Aror and her towns, and in all the cities that be along the coast of Arnon, three hundred years. Why, therefore, did you not recover them within that time? 
The Israelites had held unbroken possession of the land of Moab and Ammon all that time. Right in the middle of this period, about 1322 B.C., or 130 years after the Israelites of the tribes of Reuben and Gad had occupied the land of Moab, Elimelech, a man of Judah, with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons were driven by famine out of Judah. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, records that he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Note the accuracy of that expression. It doesn't say among the people, but in the country of Moab, which was occupied by Israelites exclusively, Moab being a name, even though there was a kingdom of Moab, Moab being a name for the country of Moab, which the Israelites had taken. And if we read the book of Numbers, Moses had numbered the children of Israel in the plains of Moab, which later belonged to the Israelites. And Comparate concludes, Elimelech's sons married women of this country, one of them being Ruth, who became an ancestor of David and through David, an ancestor of Joshua. She could not have been of any race except Israel, for no others lived there. There was a country which continued to be called Moab and belonged to the Moabites, which was only a small portion of the original land. It was south of the river Arnon, bordered by the land given to the tribe of Reuben in the north, which had formerly belonged first to the Moabites, and when the Israelites came, it was possessed by the Amorites, and it was bordered by Edom in the south. King David later subdued this remnant of the kingdom of Moab, and he put it under tribute. And if we really think about history and what the Bible may have been like or what history may have been like if David was really a Moabite, of course, where King David conquers the Moabites, no relationship of the original people of Moab to the king was ever mentioned in Scripture. If there was a relationship, and if the words of the Moabites in their appeals and transactions with the Israelites are recorded, you would think that the Moabites would have tried to take advantage of David's being a Moabite, in order to relieve themselves of such tribute. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, we read this. And after this, it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites, the one full line that was kept alive, the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. 
Now, if David were part Moabite through his great-grandmother Ruth, and Ruth is his great-grandmother, would the narrative omit any observation of that? Would the Moabites not protest their fate on the basis of kinship? But instead, Ruth was only a Moabite by geography because she came from the land to the north, which had also formerly belonged to the Moabites, but now, meaning at the time of Ruth, belonged to Israel. And Compare must be right, because the historical record reflected in Scripture would certainly be quite different if David was killing his own cousin. Now, concerning the chronology offered here by Compare, we have a fault. Compare may have done the best he could with the text of Ruth, but he neglected to notice the fact that it is very likely, and you don't hear this too often, but it's very likely that there are gaps in the genealogies which cannot be explained or filled in. Here we shall read from 1 Chronicles chapter 2. From verse 5, the sons of Pharez, Hezron, and Hamul, and the sons of Zerah, Zimri, and Ethan, and Heman, and Calcol, and Dara, five of them in all, and the sons of Carmi, Achar. Now we're not told before this who this Carmi is, and we will comment on that later. And the sons of Carmi, Achar, the troubler of Israel, who transgressed in the thing accursed. Now, Carmi is not previously mentioned, so whose son is he? And this alone indicates that something may have been missing from the records here. And then in verse 8, and the sons of Ethan, Azariah, the sons also of Hezron that were born unto him, Jeremiel and Ram and Kalubay, and Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nashan, prince of the children of Judah, and Nashan begot Salma, and Salma, or Salmon, as he's often called, begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot his firstborn, Eliab, and Abinadab the second, and Shema the third, Nathanael the fourth, Radai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, David the seventh. From this we can determine the following genealogy from Judah down to David. Judah, Pharez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashan, Salma, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and then David. And this is the same list, aside from a few spelling variations, that we see at the end of the book of Ruth, which also tells us that the book of Ruth was not written until the time of David. That is, 11 generations from Jacob all the way to David, a period of at least 800 years. Of these, 
Aminadab was young enough to be a leader of Judah in the armies numbered on the plains of Moab in Numbers chapter 1, where it says, And with you there shall be a man of every tribe, every one head of the house of his fathers, of Judah, Mashon, the son of Aminadab. Paul accurately informs us that from Abraham to the giving of the law was 430 years, and from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, and then Judah, we have seven generations down to Aminadab. But then, in the judges' period, which only covered 400 years, and Nashon was already an adult before it was alive, we see that during that entire time, we have only six recorded generations from Aminadab down to David, in a period when all of the recorded lifespans were also considerably shorter. And I'm sorry, I probably should have started counting it Nashon, meaning that we have eight generations down to Nashon. Nashon is a leader on the plains of Moab, and we only have five generations from Nashon down to David, a period of 400 years in a period when, during the judges' period, all of the recorded lifespans were considerably shorter than they were in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham lived to be uh, almost 200 years old, over 200 years old. Isaac lived to be almost 200 years old. Abraham didn't have Jacob until he was 90. Isaac did, I'm sorry, Abraham didn't have Isaac until he was 100. And Isaac didn't have Jacob until he was 60. And Jacob had his children very late in life. And for 430 years, we see eight generations elapse. In the subsequent 400 years, during the judges' period, there are only five generations recorded. So it's highly likely that the genealogies have lost a couple of generations. That's my opinion. But the circumstances certainly do indicate that it is true. For this reason, I would not be so confident to set the date for the sojourn of Elimelech, esteeming the possibility that some generations are actually missing from the genealogies. But the other things which Capere says here are very valid. If the portion of the genealogy from Ruth down to David is correct, then Ruth is the great-grandmother of David and probably only lived about 100 years before David did, perhaps not that long. A lot of living people had their great-grandmothers alive with them. Ruth probably lived during the 12th century rather than the 14th, as Compare has it here. There's no internal evidence in the book of Ruth as to the dating, except that Ruth, according to the book, was the great-grandmother of David. To continue with Compare, indeed, it could not have been otherwise. 
referring that Ruth must have been an Israelite, that she could not have been of any other race. Because from the beginning, Yahweh very strongly condemned the Moabites and Ammonites. In Deuteronomy 23.3, Yahweh commanded, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to their tenth generation, they shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. In the tenth generation, there could be as little as one part in 1,056 of Moabite blood. Even still, a person with even one part in a thousand of Moabite blood could not enter into the congregation of Yahweh forever. Now, we must add that if Ruth were a Moabite, by no means were there ten generations between Ruth and David. And even a literal reading of tenth generation could not have been fulfilled. Now, we don't accept that literally. We understand that tenth generation in those commandments is an analogy which means forever, which is why the commandment states into the congregation of Yahweh forever they shall not enter, which is why forever is ended to the end of the statement. But even if we took it literally, that after ten generations of ten generations of race mixing, the eleventh generation could somehow miraculously enter into the congregation. We only have three generations, according to the literal records of David's genealogy. He only followed Ruth by three generations. Therefore, he could not have been admitted into the congregation of Israel. It is evident in the Psalms that no man loved the laws of Yahweh like David did. From Psalm 40, which Christ himself had cited. From verse 7, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written to me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yeah, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Yahweh, thou knowest. David could not have been a member of the congregation if his great-grandmother was a Moabite. Continuing with Caparay, Yahweh was always consistent in this as in other matters. In Zephaniah 2.9, we read, Therefore, as I live, and let me say that Zephaniah was over 500 years after David, right? Therefore, as I live, saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah. Then Compare cites Jeremiah chapter 48, saying, The whole chapter is a condemnation of the people of Moab. In prophesying the triumphant return of Yahshua, Isaiah chapter 25 verse 10 tells us, For in this mountain 
shall the hand of Yahweh rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. Certainly Yahweh would not take from a people whom he condemns like Sodom, a woman to be an ancestor of Yahshua. Let anyone tell you that Yahshua was only a mongrel. With the blood of other races in his veins, Yahweh was so insistent that even the least peasant among his people must keep the bloodline pure under penalty of being cut off from his people for violation of this law. Yahshua said in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. We have the clearest proof, both as God the Father and as God the Son. Yahweh was consistently true to his own commandments. Ruth was a pure Israelite from the land of Moab, but not from the race of Moab. And this concludes Bertrand Compare's presentation on the subject with our notes, which was good, but may have been even more thorough, as we hope to have already demonstrated. However, there is still much more that can and should be said. To begin, we had purposely withheld one paragraph from the comments of Clifton Emmeheiser on Comparé's sermon, which we had provided earlier, and here it is now. Clifton says, Ruth never told Naomi, your God will be my God, regardless of the claims of the translators. The term God is from the Hebrew Elohim and means mighty ones, or when it does refer to Yahweh, mighty one. It can mean heathen gods as well as our Almighty. It can also be rendered angels or judges. And Ruth lived during the judges period. Ruth, in essence, was saying to Naomi, I will leave the jurisdiction of my judge, and your judge will become my judge. Now, Clifton may very well be correct here that gods in Ruth 1.16 should read judges, and we will not dispute it with him. His interpretation continues to make more sense than any others in the context of Ruth 1.15, the verse preceding the one in question, where Naomi speaks of Orpah, and which may be read, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people, and unto her gods, or judges. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Ruth and Orpah each being married to one of Naomi's sons. Orpah was Ruth's sister-in-law. And with this, there may be something even greater that we do not fully understand from Scripture. 
I wouldn't teach this as doctrine, but it certainly should be considered. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 31, there is recorded an issue between Jacob and Laban, because Rachel, unbeknownst to Jacob, had surreptitiously taken the household gods of her father when Jacob was taking her back to his, to his homeland. These household gods apparently had something to do with the inheritance, and Laban set up a pillar as a boundary and forced Jacob to take an oath that he would not cross the boundary to do him or his house any harm. Jacob's response to Laban's stolen gods is, in part, from verse 32, With whomsoever thou findest thy gods, let him not live before our brethren discern thou what is thine with me, and take it to thee. For Jacob knew not that Rachel had stolen them. And, of course, that Rachel did not live very long may well have been a result of this imprecation of her own husband. So the gods, which Ruth refers to in these places, may be a reference to the household gods, which the Hebrews had been keeping out of tradition as it is clear in many places in Scripture that they maintained many pagan beliefs. The Romans had some customs which shed light on the Syrian idols for which Laban was searching. There were, in Roman mythology, idols called Lares, L-A-R-E-S, and Penates, P-E-N-A-T-E-S, which were pagan deities that were believed to protect the family and the nation. Naomi could not guarantee her daughters-in-law any shelter or security for the future, so she was advising them to return to the shelter and security of their own families. This is a valid theory, and I hope that one day I may find further information to support it. However, in assessing the words of Ruth in this passage, I do not know if Clifton ever actually looked into alternative translations, or into the Hebrew, or even the Septuagint Greek of this passage. I personally have not taken the opportunity, nor had I the initiative to do so until recently. That opportunity came when Sar Opperman at the Christiania Forum had referred us to alternate translations, and, and this is rather recent, alternate translations of the particular passage in Ruth where it says in Ruth 1.16, Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God, as the King James Version has it. 
The words shall be, that passage of Ruth, are in italics in the King James Version, which indicates that the translators themselves had added those words to the text, as they do not appear in the Hebrew original. In fact, there is nothing in the original Hebrew text of this passage which insists that Naomi was inferring a future tense application for her statement. Likewise, Brenton Septuagen also has added the words shall be, where it reads the same portion of Ruth 1.16 identically with the King James Version. But there is no future tense verb in the Septuagint Greek in this passage, which only says, your people, my people, and your God, my God. The verb must be supplied in English. It could very well say, your people are my people, and your God is my God. But most modern Bible translations follow the King James translation of this passage. However, the translations of this passage of Ruth from both Young and Wycliffe, which can be verified online, there will be links with this program, do not take it for granted that the future tense was being inferred in the original statement. From the Wycliffe Bible, with its odd medieval spellings and grammar, we read at Ruth 1.16, and she answered, Be thou not adversary to me, that I forsake thee, and go away, wherever Thou shalt go, I shall go. And where thou shalt dwell, I, or it says, and I, which would be I also in modern vernacular, and I shall dwell together. Thy people is my people, and thy God is my God. Then, in Young's literal translation, of the Hebrew, we may read likewise. And Ruth said, Urge me not to leave thee, to turn back from after thee. For whither thou goest, I go, and whither, la- whither and where thou lodgest, I lodge. Thy people is my people, and my God my God. Now, Wycliffe and his fellows translated this version from the Latin of the Vulgate, and the modern Douay Reims translation of the passage from the Vulgate also adds the words shall be. But we can verify from the Latin original that the words do not exist in the Latin either. And there is no definite indication of the future tense in the original Latin of the phrase. And that therefore, 
the Wycliffe translation is valid. Like the Greek, all the Latin says is populus tuus populus meus et deus tuus deus meus. Populus tuus, your people. Populus meus, my people. Et is and. Deus tuus, your God. Meus tuus, my God. Which, without adding any verbs, indicates no tense at all. Wycliffe did well to translate it. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Of course, the Young's literal translation is from the Masoretic Hebrew, but we have now also checked each word of the original Hebrew, and Young's is also correct. There is nothing in any of the original languages of Ruth 1.16 which would compel us to read the words shall be in reference to either people or God, if Ruth were not a Moabite. But if she were instead an Israelite dwelling in the land of Moab, then Ruth 1.16 would simply be making a factual implication that Ruth could indeed follow Naomi back to the land of Judah. Because, as she very likely intended to say, thy people is my people, and my God, my God. As the passage reads in Young's literal translation, it is more honest to assume the present tense before insisting upon inferring the future tense. But there is more. There is evidence which is internal in the book of Ruth, which also proves that Ruth was an Israelite. And the following remarks are actually taken from a June 2009 program which I had done with Clifton Emmeheiser entitled Women in the Genealogy of Christ. So I'm quoting myself, basically. One thing that I think all commentators miss about the Ruth account is this. At Ruth 4.1, we see that there was another kinsman closer to Naomi in blood whose turn it was before Boaz to redeem, to redeem Ruth. However, his personal circumstances forbid him from doing so, and therefore the responsibility fell upon Boaz. Yet this other kinsman, who was unnamed, underwent great reproach because he could not fulfill the role of a kinsman redeemer. We read at Luke chapter 4, I'm sorry, Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi? Thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it from myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. 
Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. To fully understand this, we must go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And there it says, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her, her husband's brother or her next kinsman, the next kinsman to the husband's brother. And it shall be, and, and, and that's because brother just means male relative, and it goes down the line to the nearest male relative. And it shall be that the firstborn, which she beareth, shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if a man like not to take his brother's wife, here's the important part, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up unto his brother's name under his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of, a, of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him, and if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that has his shoe loosed. So we see that it is a public and open disgrace for a man to shirk the responsibility of kinsman redeemer. Yet it is wholly evident from Ruth chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, that these men were operating under the law and citing the law, that this man could easily have avoided such a disgrace if Ruth were a racial Moabite. All he would have to do was cite Deuteronomy 23.3. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the law. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter, I'm sorry, the congregation of the Lord. Even unto their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Clearly, this alone proves that Ruth was truly an Israelite. 
The law, being only for Israel, only Israelites could seek such a relief as kinsman redemption under the law in the first place. Otherwise, the kinsman who, the first kinsman in line, who could not redeem Ruth, rather than turning over his shoe, rather than suffering reproach. The first kinsman who could not redeem Ruth may have merely quoted Deuteronomy 23.3. A Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Doing so, he could have escaped the obligation of redemption without suffering any reproach if Ruth was indeed an alien. His not doing so serves to demonstrate that Ruth was a racial Israelite from the land of Moab. We must imagine that the unnamed kinsman was aware of the law and that he knew what his options were. We cannot imagine that these Israelites were aware of what the law said in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but were ignorant of Deuteronomy 23.3. Synagogues, and that's the end of my quote from six years ago, synagogues, which were places where the children of Israel gathered to the, on the Sabbath to hear the law of Yahweh. Synagogues were first mentioned in Scripture by the name synagogue in Psalm 74. The act of redemption being required here, having been conducted according to the law, it is certain that all parties involved understood the law and were acting in order to keep the law and not to despise it. If the kinsman nearest to Naomi could have escaped disgrace by citing the law, then he could not have used Deuteronomy 23.3 against Ruth, and he did not, I'm sorry, he could have used Deuteronomy 23.3 against Ruth, but he did not use it. And because he did not use it, but he evidently knew the law, and all parties involved evidently knew the law, Ruth must have been an Israelite. She could not have been a Moabite. In Scripture, there are often things which are ambiguous, and then are given two or more possibilities of interpretation. Men who judge the Word of God according to the law of God show their love for Yahweh's laws, ultimately display their love for Yahweh their God, and it is a credit to them. On the other hand, men who interpret the Word of God hypocritically and imagine Yahweh himself to be a nullifier of his own laws, a breaker of his own laws, those men are hypocrites. Those men shall be judged accordingly.
Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He does not break his own law. Ruth was an Israelite. Tomorrow night, Dissident Racism, Part 1, with Pastor Mark Downey. Next Friday, we will be in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I'm not sure of the content for our program as of yet. I will announce it at the event schedule at Christagenia, hopefully before it happens. Praise Yahweh, and good night.